Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Republic, Book 10, Part 4 Then these are the prizes, wages, and gifts that a just person receives from gods and humans while he is alive, and that are added to the good things that justice itself provides. Yes, and they're very fine and secure ones, too. Yet they're nothing in either number or size compared to those that await just and unjust people after death. And these things must also be heard, if both are to receive in full what they are owed by the argument. Then tell us about them, for there aren't many things that would be more pleasant to hear. It isn't, however, a tale of Alcinous that I'll tell you, but that of a brave Pamphylian man called Ur, the son of Arminius, who once died in a war. When the rest of the dead were picked up ten days later, they were already putrefying, but when he was picked up, his corpse was still quite fresh. He was taken home, and preparations were made for his funeral. But on the twelfth day, when he was already laid on the funeral pyre, he revived, and, having done so, told what he had seen in the world beyond. He said that, after his soul had left him, it traveled together with many others, until they came to a marvelous place, where there were two adjacent openings in the earth, and opposite and above them two others in the heavens, and between them judges sat. These, having rendered their judgment, ordered the just to go upwards into the heavens through the door on the right, with signs of the judgment attached to their chests, and the unjust to travel downward through the opening on the left, with signs of all their deeds on their backs. When Ur himself came forward, they told him that he was to be a messenger to human beings about the things that were there, and that he was to listen to and look at everything in the place. He said that he saw souls departing after judgment through one of the openings in the heavens and one in the earth, while through the other two souls were arriving. From the door in the earth souls came up covered with dust and dirt, and from the door in the heavens souls came down pure. And the souls who were arriving all the time seemed to have been on long journeys, so that they went gladly to the meadow, like a crowd going to a festival and camped there. Those who knew each other exchanged greetings, and those who came up from the earth asked those who came down from the heavens about the things there, and were in turn questioned by them about the things below. And so they told their stories to one another, the former weeping as they recalled all they had suffered and seen on their journey below the earth, which lasted a thousand years, while the latter, who had come from heaven, told about how well they had fared, and about the inconceivably fine and beautiful sights they had seen. There was much to tell, Glaucon, and it took a long time, but the main point was this. For each in turn of the unjust things they had done, and for each in turn of the people they had wronged, they paid the penalty ten times over, once in every century of their journey. Since a century is roughly the length of a human life, this means that they paid a tenfold penalty for each injustice. If, for example, some of them had caused many deaths by betraying cities or armies and reducing them to slavery, or by participating in other wrongdoing, they had to suffer ten times the pain they had caused to each individual. But if they had done good deeds, and had become just and pious, they were rewarded according to the same scale. He said some other things about the stillborn and those who had lived for only a short time, but they are not worth recounting. 
and he also spoke of even greater rewards or penalties for piety or impiety towards gods or parents, and for murder with one's own hands. For example, he said he was there when someone asked another where the great Ardeias was. This Ardeias was said to have been tyrant in some city in Pamphylia a thousand years before, and to have killed his aged father and older brother, and committed many other impious deeds as well. And he said that the one who was asked responded, He hasn't arrived here yet, and never will, for this too was one of the terrible sights we saw. When we came near the opening on our way out, after all our sufferings were over, we suddenly saw him together with some others, pretty well all of whom were tyrants, although there were also some private individuals among them who had committed great crimes. They thought that they were ready to go up, but the opening wouldn't let them through, for it roared whenever one of these incurably wicked people or anyone else who hadn't paid a sufficient penalty tried to go up. And there were savage men, all fiery to look at, who were standing by. And when they heard the roar, they grabbed some of these criminals and led them away. But they bound the feet, hands, and head of Ardeias and the others, threw them down, and flayed them. Then they dragged them out of the way, lacerating them on thorn bushes, and telling every passer-by that they were to be thrown into Tartarus, and explaining why they were being treated in this way. And he said that of their many fears, the greatest each of them had was that the roar would be heard as he came up, and that everyone was immensely relieved when silence greeted him. Such, then, were the penalties and punishments and the rewards corresponding to them. Each group spent seven days in the meadow, and on the eighth they had to get up and go on a journey. On the fourth day of that journey they came to a place where they could look down from above on a straight column of light that stretched over the whole of heaven and earth, more like a rainbow than anything else, but brighter and more pure. After another day they came to the light itself, and there, in the middle of the light, they saw the extremities of its bonds stretching from the heavens, for the light binds the heavens like the cables girding a trireme, and holds its entire revolution together. From the extremities hang the spindle of necessity, by means of which all the revolutions are turned. Its stem and hook are of adamant, whereas in its whirl adamant is mixed with other kinds of material. The nature of the whirl was this. Its shape was like that of an ordinary whirl. But, from what Ur said, we must understand its structure as follows. It was as if one big whirl had been made hollow by being thoroughly scooped out, with another smaller whirl closely fitted into it, like nested boxes, and there was a third whirl inside the second, and so on, making eight whirls altogether, lying inside one another, with their rims appearing as circles from above, while from the back they formed one continuous whirl around the spindle, which was driven through the center of the eighth. The first, or outside whirl, had the widest circular rim. That of the sixth was second in width. The fourth was third. The eighth was fourth. The seventh was fifth. The fifth was sixth. The third was seventh. And the second was eighth. The rim of the largest was spangled. That of the seventh was brightest. That of the eighth took its color from the seventh's shining on it. The second and fifth were about equal in brightness, more yellow than the others. The third was the whitest in color. The fourth was rather red, and the sixth was second in whiteness. The whole spindle turned at the same speed, but, as it turned, 
the inner spheres gently revolved in a direction opposite to that of the whole. Of these inner spheres, the eighth was the fastest. Second came the seventh, sixth, and fifth, at all the same speed. It seemed to them that the fourth was third in its speed of revolution. The fourth, third, and the second, fifth. The spindle itself turned on the lap of necessity. And up above on each of the rims of the circle stood a siren, who accompanied its revolution, uttering a single sound, one single note, and the concord of the eight notes produced a single harmony. And there were three other beings sitting at equal distances from one another, each on a throne. These were the fates, the daughters of necessity, Lachesis, Clotho, and Atropos. They were dressed in white, with garlands on their heads, and they sang to the music of the sirens. Lachesis sang of the past, Clotho of the present, and Atropos of the future. With her right hand, Clotho touched the outer circumference of the spindle and helped it turn, but left off doing so from time to time. Atropos did the same to the inner ones, and Lachesis helped both motions in turn, one with one hand and one with the other. When the souls arrived at the light, they had to go to Lachesis right away. There a speaker arranged under them in order, took from the lap of Lachesis a number of lots and a number of models of lives, mounted a high pulpit, and spoke to them. Here is the message of Lachesis, the maiden daughter of necessity. Ephemeral souls, this is the beginning of another cycle that will end in death. Your daimon, or guardian spirit, will not be assigned to you by lot. You will choose him. The one who has the first lot will be the first to choose a life, to which he will then be bound by necessity. Virtue knows no master. Each will possess it to a greater or less degree, depending on whether he values or disdains it. The responsibility lies with the one who makes the choice. The god has none. When he had said this, the speaker threw the lots among all of them, and each, with the exception of Ur, who wasn't allowed to choose, picked up the one that fell next to him, and the lot made it clear to the one who picked it up where in the order he would get to make his choice. After that, the models of lives were placed on the ground before them. There were far more of them than there were souls present, and they were of all kinds, for the lives of animals were there, as well as all kinds of human lives. There were tyrannies among them, some of which lasted throughout life, while others ended halfway through in poverty, exile, and beggary. There were lives of famous men, some of whom were famous for the beauty of their appearance, others for their strength or athletic prowess, others still for their high birth and the virtue or excellence of their ancestors. And there were also lives of men who weren't famous for any of these things, and the same for lives of women. But the arrangement of the soul was not included in the model because the soul is inevitably altered by the different lives it chooses. But all the other things were there, mixed with each other and with wealth, poverty, sickness, health, and the states intermediate to them. Now, it seems that it is here, Glaucon, that a human being faces the greatest danger of all. And because of this, each of us must neglect all other subjects and be most concerned to seek out and learn those that will enable him to distinguish the good life from the bad, and always to make the best choice possible in every situation. He should think over all the things we have mentioned and how they jointly and severally determine what the virtuous life is like. 
That way he will know what the good and bad effects of beauty are when it is mixed with wealth, poverty, and a particular state of the soul. He will know the effects of high or low birth, private life or ruling office, physical strength or weakness, ease or difficulty in learning, and all the things that are either naturally part of the soul or are acquired. And he will know what they achieve when mixed with one another. And from all this he will be able, by considering the nature of the soul, to reason out which life is better and which worse, and to choose accordingly, calling a life worse if it leads the soul to become more unjust, better if it leads the soul to become more just, and ignoring everything else. We have seen that this is the best way to choose, whether in life or death. Hence, we must go down to Hades holding with adamantine determination to the belief that this is so lest we be dazzled there by wealth and other such evils, rush into a tyranny or some other similar course of action, do irreparable evils, and suffer even worse ones. And we must always know how to choose the mean in such lives, and how to avoid either of the extremes, as far as possible, both in this life and in all those beyond it. This is the way that a human being becomes happiest." Then our messenger from the other world reported that the speaker spoke as follows. There is a satisfactory life rather than a bad one available even for the one who comes last, provided that he chooses it rationally and lives it seriously. Therefore, let not the first be careless in his choice, nor the last discouraged. He said that when the speaker had told them this, the one who came up first chose the greatest tyranny. In his folly and greed, he chose it without adequate examination, and didn't notice that, among other evils, he was fated to eat his own children as a part of it. When he examined at leisure the life he had chosen, however, he beat his breast and bemoaned his choice, and, ignoring the warning of the speaker, he blamed chance, daemons, or guardian spirits, and everything else for these evils but himself. He was one of those who had come down from heaven, having lived his previous life under an orderly constitution, where he had participated in virtue through habit and without philosophy. Broadly speaking, indeed, most of those who were caught out in this way were souls who had come down from heaven and who were untrained in suffering as a result. The majority of those who had come up from the earth, on the other hand, having suffered themselves and seen others suffer, were in no rush to make their choices. Because of this, and because of the chance of the lottery, there was an interchange of goods and evils for most of the souls. However, if someone pursues philosophy in a sound manner when he comes to live here on earth, and if the lottery doesn't make him one of the last to choose, then, given what Ur has reported about the next world, it looks as though not only will he be happy here, but his journey from here to there and back again won't be along the rough underground path, but along the smooth, heavenly one. Ur said that the way in which the souls chose their lives was a sight worth seeing, since it was pitiful, funny, and surprising to watch. For the most part, their choice depended upon the character of their former life. For example, he said that he saw the soul that had once belonged to Orpheus choosing a swan's life, because he hated the female sex because of his death at their hands, and so was unwilling to have a woman conceive and give birth to him. Ur saw the soul of Thamiris choose the life of a nightingale, 
a swan choosing to change over to a human life, and other musical animals doing the same thing. The twentieth soul chose the life of a lion. This was the soul of Ajax, son of Telamon. He avoided human life because he remembered the judgment about the armor. The next soul was that of Agamemnon, whose sufferings also had made him hate the human race. So he changed to the life of an eagle. Atalanta had been assigned a place near the middle, and when she saw great honors being given to a male athlete, she chose his life, unable to pass them by. After her, he saw the souls of Epius, the son of Panopius, taking on the nature of a craftswoman. And very close to last, he saw the soul of the ridiculous Thersites clothing itself as a monkey. Now, it chanced that the soul of Odysseus got to make its choice last of all. And since memory of its former sufferings had relieved its love of honor, it went around for a long time, looking for the life of a private individual who did his own work, and with difficulty it found one lying off somewhere neglected by the others. He chose it gladly, and said that he'd have made the same choice even if he'd been first. Still other souls changed from animals into human beings, or from one kind of animal into another, with unjust people changing into wild animals, and just people into tame ones, and all sorts of mixtures occurred. After all the souls had chosen their lives, they went forward to Lachesis in the same order in which they had made their choices, and she assigned to each the daimon it had chosen as guardian of its life and fulfiller of its choice. This daimon first led the soul under the hand of Clotho as it turned the revolving spindle to confirm the fate that the lottery and its own choice had given it. After receiving her touch, he led the soul to the spinning of Atropos, to make what had been spun irreversible. Then, without turning around, they went from there under the throne of necessity, and when all of them had passed through, they traveled to the plain of forgetfulness in burning, choking, terrible heat, for it was empty of trees and earthly vegetation. And there, beside the river of unheeding, whose water no vessel can hold, they camped, for night was coming on. All of them had to drink a certain measure of this water, but those who weren't saved by reason drank more than that, and as each of them drank, he forgot everything and went to sleep. But around midnight there was a clap of thunder and an earthquake, and they were suddenly carried away from there, this way and that, up to their births, like shooting stars. Ur himself was forbidden to drink from the water, all the same, he didn't know how he had come back to his body, except that waking up suddenly he saw himself lying on the pyre at dawn. And so, Glaucon, his story wasn't lost, but preserved. And it would save us if we were persuaded by it, for we would then make a good crossing of the river of forgetfulness, and our souls wouldn't be defiled. But if we are persuaded by me, we'll believe that the soul is immortal, and able to endure every evil, and every good. And we'll always hold to the upward path, practicing justice with reason in every way. That way we'll be friends both to ourselves, and to the gods while we remain here on earth, and afterwards. Like victors in the games who go around collecting their prizes, we'll receive our rewards. Hence, both in this life, and on the thousand-year journey we've described, we'll do well and be happy. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, 
twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.